basically born and bred in Westport, lived all my life in Carter's Beach, um, born in 1954, so to uh, um, Ivy and, and Charles Brunning, and mum and dad, and uh, sort of grew up but on the farm at Carter's Beach up Brunnings Road. First things I can sort of remember go back to about four or five and always went everywhere with, with my father, um, all around the farm and, um, and up the cow shed and feeding out the, the cows and everything at winter time with the tractor and loved the tractor and then progressed on from there. Basically um, started milking cows in the weekends and the mornings at uh, probably six, around six years of age. It was just a natural thing to do. Always went up and helped bring the cows in. So I was sort of just growing up as a kid on the farm. Progressed through to um, basically nine years of age, I was driving the tractor, which is... um, quite young even those days, but it was just a natural thing. They were they were stuck. They used to put me on the tractor and send us home on the tractor or whatever if they were doing other things because it only wasn't mowing or anything like that, but uh, just a trailer and feeding out, that type of thing. From there, sort of in between, you know, playing, there was a good family, a lot of families at Carter Speech that we all played with, so Walsh's, um, the Broads, um, the Anthony's, their father was um, airport, he was at the airport work there. So so there was families coming and going all the time, the Menzies, out Carter's Beach. And we all got round as a, as a group and we spent a lot of time up the back of the farm, up in the Parkies area and the, and the crushes up there for the cement works. Um, we swam in the, in the creek. Ninety percent of our swimming time was was in the creek up there. Typical parky water. You couldn't see the bottom. It was sort of a blackish with all the tints from the bush and the parky soils up there. Um, you swam with the eels. The only time you knew they were there was when they swam between your legs or something like that. We did a mad scatter out of the place, but two minutes later we were back in again, so it didn't make any difference. The crusher was. Um, one of the highlights, there was always big heaps of gravels, big heaps of crush, crusher dust, um, so that was all good to play on. Up on, the, we were always running around in the crusher on the weekends because um, the cement works only had it going during the five days during the week, and the, so basically from about seven to five o'clock or something. And so in the weekends, that was our, our big toy to play with, and the way they got the gravel to the crusher, it was flumes, wooden flumes from around different parts of where they were working. And with the big water cannon that the, like the gold miners used, it was set up in a face. So we'd get up there on the weekend and we would bomb shit out of this, out of the cliffs and all the rocks and the gravel and everything, all come down, would fill the crusher up, would fill all the races up because there's a lot of water coming out. The water actually came from through probably 12-inch pipes, they were steel pipes, just up on top of the terrace from the crusher was another dam. And to keep that filled up, that was water was flumed from Costello's dams up on the Parkies. 
so like a good kilometre away. So there was always a good supply of water, but we could just about manage to drain the dam just up on the crushes there. And that's when we give up when the water stopped. Monday morning or something would come, or Monday night when we got back home from school, Dad would always say to us, you damn kids have been up there fluming all that down and you block the crusher up and we block the flumes up. But it um, didn't stop us from going up there again the next weekend. Apart from playing in there, um, we also had the old gold mining workings from the Depression, from the 20s into the 30s. And there was quite a elaborate sort of a system up there where a lot of the water was brought in from that existing water race that I was talking about with the crusher that was originally put there for the gold miners. And they, just along from the crusher, um, south, probably a few hundred metres, was the first of the gold workings, major ones there. They had tunnels. They opened casts sort of at the top. They dug at the top. Some of them, the gold was a bit deeper, so they dug tunnels in. And in these tunnels, they go in oh, 100. Oh, one of them went through about 100 metres and popped out into the, the bush in behind. This one was our main tunnel we played in because it had a T intersection in the middle. And they only went in probably 20 metres or something. But what we used to do was carve out the pumpkins, like Halloween pumpkins, put a candle in it and anyone come out from town to play with us or from around the beach and didn't know the caves are there would take them into the caves and we'd just march on through ahead of them. They'd be following in the dark and then they'd turn around and see these Halloween pumpkins in the the, uh, offshoots of the tunnels and they'd be gone. Half the people, we couldn't even get back into the tunnels again. (laughs) It was quite amusing. Um, There's tunnels all the way along there to Bradshaw's. There was another two tunnels along there. Back towards Westport and around Elmer Road, under Elmer Road, there's still tunnels there today under some of those houses. Pete Ashby's not far away from one. So there's, there was quite an extent sort of, of mining up there. Another unique one there, the type of crushing they did, because the gold was all in the iron pan. And to crush the iron pan, they didn't. there was no stampers up there. There was one wheel, concrete, round foundation block, and it had a big sandstone wheel. I'm not sure if it was made or carved out of a out of a stone or not, but it must have weighed a good probably ton. And the water come from through a cave underground and drove a water wheel. And that was one of the rarest gold mining of that type on the coast. It just didn't happen on the coast. So it was you know happened in other places but not on the coast. And it was there when we were kids and everything. When The airport was extended and modified because it was all grass runways and the the old DC-3s used to land on that. But when they changed over to the Fokker Friendship, they had to excavate and dig down and fill up with gravel and tar-seal the runway for that. All the gravel come from up the pits up the back of the farm. To start off with, they just put the dozers in and stripped off all the sand and the mud and the parquet and the iron pan, pushed it over the bank, covered the whole damn lot. 
So it's still underneath that, all the, underneath all that soil and everything today, but hell, it was a unique one. Yeah, so growing up, we, we spent a lot of time up in the gold claims area and the tunnels up in the parkies. We went healing. When Dad killed a, a sheep or a pig, um, we used to catch, keep all the blood, catch the blood into a gallon tin, take it up there, pour it in the creek, and all the eels would come along. And we would do this on evening time and we'd sit there with a spear spearing eels. Not that we ate them. <laughs> it was just things that us kids did them days. You know, and even likes of the Walshers and the Broads and stuff, they used to come up and do all that as well. We did it all together. As you grow up, you get into a little bit more thing. The likes of once I got to age, I was interested in, well, because we had the TB on the farm in the, in the early 60s and into the mid-60s. So Bennett's farm right next to us, he lost his whole herd. Even though we boundaried, we still, we we only lost a few cows a year through TB. But the moral of that was they've worked out that it was possums that were coming and bringing the TB into the cows and onto the farms. So I was only 10 or 11 and night time comes, I grabbed the 22 out, the 22 rifle out of the hot water cupboard because that's where everything was kept in them days. And off would go shooting, spotlighting. I'd shoot at 30, 40 possums a night. And at the age of 10 and 11, do that with a young kid nowadays. <laughs> Mum to do, to be happy with that, I could see. <laughs> and so there was lots of that. Um, duck shooting was the same. Just grab the old shotgun off up the creek and wander along the creek and shoot a few ducks, take them home. And, and I thought this was pretty good because Dad was, um, he always plucked and gutted them. And little did I know the next time I come home with a few, he said, you shoot them, you pluck them, you gut them. <laughs> so that novelty wore off pretty quick. No, and then you sort of move on into, got into boats and canoes. Well, first of all, we used to make a raft out of flaxwood, out of the flaxwood sticks, and you'd bundle them all up, and we could get three or four of us on a, one of these rafts. And we started off in the in the drain just up the side of the road, but that wasn't big enough, and it wasn't long enough, and wasn't deep enough. You see, so we progressed up to the creek up the back because there was a good flow in the creek, and um, that got a little bit boring because there was a little sandbars in it when it was low, and then we. We um, got a bit of a bit of rain one night, and she was in flood. So we shot up there, and we were going to head down the um, creek down to Martin's Bridge down that way. So you can go right down the whole creek. But um, we only got about a hundred metres, and uh, I jumped off thankfully. And brother Charlie and Dave Walsh they started going off down the creek, but they tipped over because the creek was in that big of a flood. All they could do was hang onto a, onto a flax bush. And I was sitting there and thought, well, I can't reach them. I was only about 10 or 11. So the crusher was working, and I rushed up to the crusher, and they were sitting, the guys, there used to be three guys worked there full time, and they were in having the smoker, and they heard me coming and yelling down the road, and they come out to meet us out at the smoker hut, and then I told them what was happening, so they all run down, and they stood have been in there about 10 minutes hanging onto this flax, they were lucky they didn't drown, actually. But um, that's the things we did. So that was kept very quiet for a long time before we told Mum and Dad. Never seen the raft again. 
we never built another one either. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so it was, you know, the boating was always there. Um, I've, I've still got a photo at home taken in the early 30s of my father, Uncle Jack, Uncle Alan. They dropped a totra tree and made a big Indian canoe. And um, they used to go up and down the Buller River and everything. And, and I think that's what, you know, where all the boating started from. And then, of course, when we got a bit older, the broads down the end of the road, they were, lived on the right-hand side coming out from town as you turn off round into Carter's Beach and go round to Shattuck Drive to the airport. Lionel, the oldest son, he built kayaks. And um, he was only 18, 19 and he built kayaks, so we ended up getting kayaks, and that's when we started moving around the estuaries and then the lagoon and behind um, on the Carter Beach side by the airport there. Um, we used to go in from Walsh's, and we there's an island out there in the middle. We used to paddle out to that, and then we get more adventurous and they go right up Martin's Island, up the estuary where the um, Carwateri track comes down the side, down down the Buller from the bridge right down to the um, Packers Point and around those areas. Them days, it wasn't, it wasn't blocked up like it is now, and you could just about go right up to the end by the Buller, um, top of Martins Island, but we still couldn't get through. But one time it was an island, for, but that's, that's how it's silted up in the last what, 50, 55 years. Yeah, so around there and up in the Buller River and... Yeah, we had a lot of fun, a lot of because a lot of canals and and creeks all off the main Martins Creek and into the history there. Tidal, you know, it was always it didn't matter if it was low tide or high tide, you could always get up Martins Creek. But um, we had a lot of lot of time playing in there. I remember in the early sixties or mid sixties, um, the Otago University coming up. And into Walsh's block at the time, and wondered what they were doing, excavating for um, the Maori site there. I did join them for half a day or so, but um, it was too slow a work for me. They were doing too; it was too fine. I just wanted to dig things up. It was interesting, and then that come about also because my grandfather um, brought the farm where I was brought up on in 1903. He shifted onto the farm in 1903. It was just pure bush. He cleared the farm, but he was the only one, he was a guy that had draft horses, not quite the Clydesdales, but they were a big horse. And he used to do a lot of contract ploughing at the time. And I'd already cleared the paddocks over there in Walsh's. They'd never been ploughed. So he went in in the probably 1920s, I think it was, early 20s, and started ploughing and pulling up all these Maori artefacts. There was adzes and greenstone, and, and there was a heap of it. There was a ship's captain at the time in Westport that was here for coal, taking back to Australia, and he was interested in all this stuff, so he took them to Sydney, where they were put into the museums in Sydney. And it was only back in the 90s, I think, that Sydney Museum handed them back, and they are now in Canterbury Museum. But um, So they did come back. There was a lot, and that's when they realised that there was a village there. 
And getting back to the subject of um, when I was there, and the, uh, that was with the University of Otago, that was the first excavation they'd ever done on it. And then progressively from there, they come back in uh, around the 2000s. So there was a big gap. They come back again, and they've been back about three times since then and excavated, and that's why the, they've got the history of it now as well. Yes, as a... It goes back, it just brings back memories, just even what I found out when I was another thing I was really interested in when I was a young fellow was when Pearson's got their first excavator. They were digging ditches and drains out towards Cape Falwin, this side of the cement works, where just past Terry McDonnell's and where Wecker Stitch was right in the front. They found the wreckage of a, well, they thought it was a, a log underneath and he couldn't shift it so they got out the old explosives and um, blew it up come timbers and they realised it was records of a ship so that was the early stage and it just played on my mind for years and years and years and then it was only probably three four years ago we decided to do something about it and um, myself Steve Wilkinson went to um Rotary, they were going. They backed us up on certain things. I seen the boss at West Reef and got a machine, another excavator, pumps, and we drained it. So we dug up the in the spot where it was because I knew where it was right from a kid. Dug that up, pumped, dammed the drains up so we could pump the water out. We had fire brigade pumps out there, we had pumps from West Reef, everywhere, and we had the. Otago University, their guys there again, they measured it all up and it was a main section of a ship called the Mountain Maid, which sunk, hit the bar on Carter's Beach side because there was no rock walls or anything up them days and grounded, but they tried unloading it, but the storm come up and blew it onto the beaches and um, wrecked it completely. That wreckage is right, the nose of the, is right on the edge of the main road across from Wicker Stitch on that corner. So you can see how much the, the beach had built up. But uh, yeah, and the history of that, how we found out, or the university found out, there were samples of coal still in the, in the cracks and in the joins and the timber. They sent it away to the DSIR, and it was actually coal from Australia. They were bringing coal into Westport. The coal wasn't found in the ball of them days. And um, they were burning a lot of coal because the wood was wet. Um, yeah, and they were taking basic freight out. They were bringing in gold miners too at the time, but probably from Australia because of Charleston and Addison's Flat. Yeah, and just a little bit of history. All we did, we, um, we couldn't salvage anything from it. Um, we weren't allowed to really touch it because of historic trusts. What we did was buried her back up again, so she's still under the, the uh, big section, a whole beautiful condition. Not a nail in it. It's all what they call tree-nailed, and all, it's all dowled. All the sections of timber were dowled. It was triple-skinned, um, which is very unusual. Most of the ships at the time were only double-skinned. Um, this is triple-skinned. Um, what we can make out was built around Canada somewhere. So, uh, yeah. Probably quite a few things like that still around the coast. Jeff, can I ask you why they wanted her to be reburied? We could not 
salvage it. Once it's out of the water for a couple of hours, everything starts shrinking. We had to keep it wet, so we had hoses on it, keeping it wet, and it was surprising how the timbers shrunk because uh, it's it's like there's a lot of beach sand there, but it's very humorous because the, the grass and the shallow was more like a swamp, and the it didn't rot anything. It's preserved it, and so... If we lifted the sections out, we would have had to put them into an environment where it's fully enclosed, temperature controlled, and certain amounts of spray water going on it all the time, which um, to get it from here to Christchurch and keep it wet and then find someone that'll do it, it just costs hundreds of thousands to set up. I still come up with a theory that, um, you know, if there was enough sponsorship around the bullet here, um, you could build something on site and leave it there like that on site instead of trying to transport it out because it's a section that's um, probably oh, getting up 12, 15 metres by 8 or 9 metres and it's a beautiful whole curvature right up from the keel, it's one side of the keel right up the full side up to the gunnels and the rails on the side of the ship. So it's a complete section, and to have that displayed in an environment where it could be done would be amazing because there's not many ships like that, you know, anywhere in the country. They've got the Edwin Fox up at Picton, but that's about the... and a couple of scows around the country and things like that, but they're not old. The Edwin Fox is old. She was an immigrant ship in the early days, but... uh, but it would be that hopefully someone will get back into it again, or, you know, come up with an idea and do something because it would be good on part of the Carveteria Trail because they go right past that within uh, virtually <laughs> um, cycling over top of some of it.